0: Hello, welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello, Matthew. We're joined by a returning special guest, Andy. Do you want to reintroduce yourself?
1: Hey, I'm Andy Kelly. Um, last time I was on this podcast, I was on PC Gamer. Now I'm on the Gamer. I just work in places with "Gamer" in the title. Now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Andy. You're um, you're a popular guest among our listeners, so we really appreciate it. So, um. Andy is crowdfunding a, a book specifically about alien isolation on Unbound, called Perfect Organism. Um, I'll share a link in the um, the notes for this, but it's Unbound dot slash book slash Perfect Organism with a dash in the Perfect Organism. God, URLs are hard to tweet out of the podcast. <laughs> but I'll tweet it out anyway. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about that. Then Andy's going to talk to us about um, the sort of the Dreamcast, one of our blind spots in the podcast. Some of our listeners. Uh, say so we don't talk about sega that much which is fair enough and i knew andy had a bit of a soft spot for the dreamcast so um hence the coming on this episode but how are you doing andy and uh what are you up to these days what are you playing these days i've gone
1: wild for the switch at the moment uh, i've got a switch OLED and i've all i'm doing is playing games on switch at the moment if it's not on switch i ain't interested it's i <laughs> think it's my one of my favorite consoles ever the specifically the oled model which has just got such a beautiful screen and oh. such a delight to play stuff on there's a a, a a disgusting amount of good games on switch at the moment and i've i bought a, a massive memory card and it's just heaving with stuff cool indies and um, so I'm playing a bit of Sunless Sea, playing a bit of Famicom Detective Club, which we talked about on the, the last time mm, I was on. How
2: are you getting on with that?
1: Um, yeah, Famicom Detective Club. Uh, yeah, really good. It's, it's it's such a like crisp and beautiful looking and sounding game. I think like the OLED really makes it sing in that, re- yeah, that regard. Yeah. It's, it's beautifully presented.
0: Andy, am I right in thinking you switched up from a, a, a Switch Lite at some point? Is that right? And then you, um, you upgraded to this model? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah.
1: So it, it, as you can imagine, it's a absolutely wild upgrade from that switch light which i convinced myself was fine and i was playing breath of the wild on it and going, this is fine and then i upgraded and went that wasn't fine that little murky <laughs> lcd screen and yeah it's it's like it's like night and day it's amazing
0: oh that's cool um yeah so um annie like uh, you you writing a book about any isolation makes total sense to me because in the time I went with you on PC Gamer, you wrote at least three or four features on on Alien Isolation. Um, Clearly had a big passion for the game. So uh, do you want to talk a bit about your your background with the game and why uh, specifically you wanted to write a book about this game?
1: Yeah, well, I remember when um, Chris Thurston, formerly of PC Gamer, saw a preview event and he came back into the office with sort of breathless praise for what he'd just seen. And I think that sort of piqued my interest and already being a a huge fan of the film from what he said it was you know it was the it was the alien game that i always wish someone would make and then i ended up reviewing it for pc gamer gave it 90 something and yeah i think that was that was the beginning of it i think instantly i was like this is a game that i just want to write about forever it it, it was kind of an instantaneous thing
0: yeah it did feel like uh significant on pc gamer that we made it game of the year at the time and then i remember there were some reviews like at embargo that weren't super full of praise for it like it was um it was weirdly divisive but it felt like we were kind of planting our flag in it like no this is what we kind of want from um this kind of game this sort of um the unpredictable aspect of the ai all that sort of thing what are the kind of like different elements of the game i guess that sort of speak to you that kind of still fascinate you um eight years after it released
1: well i think in much the same way i'm still watching the the film uh on a fairly regular basis is the kind of production of it so the actual craft of the look and feel and sound of it is the most compelling thing to me still where i'm I'm. it's still a game where I, it takes me forever to finish or make progress because i'm constantly stopping and staring at ducts and <laughs> you know pipes and marveling at this sort of ridiculous fidelity of the of the world and the how closely they mirrored the the kind of aesthetic of the film like it's I think artistically it's like one of the most impressive games I've ever played so that's one of the main things that keeps me coming back to it.
0: Were you ever sort of like um, bummed out they didn't do a sequel? Do you think there was anywhere left to take it as someone who's like a big fan of the alien series?
1: Yeah, I th- I think that it should have been the the starting point for like you know a trilogy or you know even just one more stealth games with the same spirit as that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could you could have transported it to a mo- you know you could have set it on Hadley's Hope type colony on a planet or in a space prison like Alien Three or whatever. I feel like that that template was perfect for a, a million great alien games, but it just sort of petered out, and most of the team who made Isolation have left that team, and so if they did make another one, it wouldn't be quite the same because a lot of the most of the key players have have jumped ship to other studios now. Right,
0: right, yeah. Um, yeah including no code right which felt like it a studio that kind of i know it didn't entirely emerge from the wake of this game but like it feels like the dna of that of this game seems to live more in in those games than anything else do you think that's fair to say
1: yeah yeah i'm a big fan of um of no code stuff uh, yeah john mckellen was the like lead ui a- artist on isolation so he did all the uh vhs and uh de- degraded video effects and uh, retro futuristic UI stuff so he started yet he in indie studio in Glasgow called No Code who did Stories Untold it was kind of like a horror anthology based around like arcane ancient computers then mm. he did Observation which was like a vaguely 2001-esque game where you played an AI controlling a space station and uh, apparently they're working on a third game now that's like even bigger than the previous two so they're clearly doing well you know and I think mm. Observation especially really does have like tons of the dna of isolation and its aesthetic and its pace and the kind of muted realism of the of the art and the sort of the lead lead, uh, voice actor and um observation was like the mod the character model for amanda ripley and in in isolation so there's like there's a lot of connective tissue there but yeah that's that's the place to go to to get a, a whiff of isolations particular kind of magic
2: no no interest in like an aliens isolation where it goes like full action you don't want a, a kind of a continuation of like the, the sort of the film through line in your games
1: well they they could like I, I remember before isolation came out uh dreaming out loud on twitter about a, a stealth game where you play as Newt and Hadley's Hope when everyone's died and it's all the aliens are running rampant and you're this little girl you know Oh. Running, running through the the vents and stuff, and trying to escape the alien. Then they made Alien Isolation, which was that game minus the aliens theming. Mm. But yeah, I'd 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 love to see like I think if a developer captured the James Cameron '80s alien aesthetic in a similar way, I'd be well up for that. Like if you know they did, did the same back engineering, taking that film apart and making a new world with that look, um, I'd I'd be mm. well up for that.
0: Are there any other of the Alien games that you, you do like, Andy, or as um, I, I, I'm assuming, Isolation wipes the floor with them? But like, um, I'm assuming you've got a long history of playing these. Are there any you've got fun memories of? Um,
1: I mean, maybe Alien Three on on SNES, which I had, even though it's mm. sort of a grueling and an quite unpleasant, miserable game. I, I, <laughs> I kind of remember being quite compelled by the the weird atmosphere of it. But yeah, really, I mean, I've played all of them, and yeah, nothing nothing comes even remotely close to isolation um especially not you know the the colonial marines era i guess i I didn't really play a, a, the avp games much um mm-hmm. so they're a bit of a blind spot for me i'm not as interested in predators i don't want aliens versus anything i just want alien on its own <laughs>
2: <laughs> alien versus you <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly
0: so andy give us a breakdown of the book and how you've divided up by chapters and sort of subjects um is it kind of like uh, all kind of like features or like um criticism is there some dev interviews in there how did you kind of approach like um writing it
1: it started out as a pure making of book i wanted to write but basically because disney now owns alien getting to write and a, a making of book and get access to the, all the developers who are all nda'd up to the eyes is involves jumping through so many mickey mouse shit hoops that i was like <laughs> forget about it you know sure. um yeah so i but then I, i'm there's a I don't know if do either of you watch Inside Number Nine, the TV show. I think Sam does enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah it's great. Um, um Steve Pemberton and, and Reese Smith released like a companion book to that, um, episode by episode kind of background and full breakdowns and discussion kind of thing. And and I was um, watching an ep- I, I rewatched the show with the book, so I watched an episode, read the chapter in the book about that episode, and sort of used it as a companion. Which I really enjoyed doing, and I thought someone should do that for a game, and then I thought, why doesn't my alien book become a companion? So the idea is mm. that you can have it with you you know while you play for the game. I mean you could do a level or a chapter and read that you know read the corresponding chapter of my book and for a sort of deeper understanding of it, so that's kind of where it came from so the the main oh. the main thrust of the book is as a companion by someone who spent eight years obsessing over every detail of the, of the game so it's kind of like a director's commentary by not the director By you know sometimes on like a, a blu-ray you get like a, a direct a commentary track by some like film nerd that's a yeah. kind of that's a kind of vibe i'm going for
0: oh that's cool no i like that so like what's the example of like uh, a chapter and how and how it kind of like relates to the game like how have you um is there kind of like one you'd highlight as an example of like here's how i here's how i've done it in the book essentially
1: each chapter of the companion will like come at it from like every different angle or a bunch of different angles so like they'll be looking at it as from a game design focus so I'll talk about level design how certain set pieces are constructed you know like just kind of game designy stuff that you'd say uh-huh. and write about in a review um, another part of it and the part I'm most excited about is an artistic point of view so I'll be going through pouring through every look environment pointing out every piece of scenery that's uh, pulled out of the nineteen seventy nine film and how they've reconstructed it. It's even like all the technology, all the weapons, the costumes, like I'm gonna go really deep into all that stuff and how it corresponds to the movie and what the Creative Assembly added of their own embellishments, that kind of thing. So the opening chapter of the game will like be a good example of that because it's such a um there's no alien but it's such a scene setting, like hour, where you start on a ship and then you end up on Sevastopol, the station where the game's set against, you know, against your will and like it's sort of you you drip fed the ambience of the game so i think the companion chapter of that will like analyze it from a game design perspective an atmosphere art um, story as well like you know what led to it and uh sort of unseen story stuff that the game doesn't explain about what happened before um mm. the events of the game so yeah it's basically like a there's no real like set structure to each chapter it's going to be just like you're going to come out of it with just a head full of stuff about every aspect of the game and when the alien shows up i'll talk about the ai and and things like that so yeah it's it's, like, it's just a, a big old explosion of alien isolation information
2: has it been influenced at all by like your reading around alien because i know that you kind of consume every bit of like making of and behind the scenes media there is like has that had a impact on like how you're approaching it
1: yeah, well I I've read every alien making of book there is including this huge one that came out not too long ago by I think JW Rinsler who does like some of the best making of books around. He wrote this really fat tome about the making of the original film and and yeah, I think I, I think I'd be writing about it like I I love those books like um uh, there's a book called Future Noir by Paul M. Salmon about uh, Blade Runner. And it's like a really in-depth analysis of Blade Runner, every aspect of it. Um, again, like I'm trying to do, looking at art, Mm. sound design, behind-the-scenes stories, uh, stuff like that. So it's gonna be like it'll be written like one of those like super deep making of movie books, but for a game.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, So last time I checked, you're about uh, you're over halfway funded. Is that is that right? Is that where you're at currently? Yeah, I think fifty-seven percent. Last time I checked awesome so yeah if people want to go um back the book like I say, i'll link it on twitter but um follow andy on twitter ultra brilliant as well and i'm sure and is it like your pin tweet or something the book i assume so. yeah like yeah it's at top
1: yeah. of my thing and and if you pledge to it you you don't just help me get it printed but you actually pre-order a hardback copy so it's just basically like pre-ordering the book but the pre-order money goes directly to you know actually getting the thing printed um because mm. i'm unbound who i'm doing it with are like a proper publisher, like they sell books in shops and stuff, but they just, instead of, they let people basically, with passion for stuff, like getting, you know, who want to write a book about something and might have a hard time getting through a traditional publisher, like I can't imagine many publishers want to publish a book about an eight-year-old horror game, but through Darlene Unbound.
2: Kingsley. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so through Unbound, it's a good way to actually get the thing made, but yeah, I think yeah, it's at 57%, and I think it's from what I'm hearing from people behind the scenes it's basically on track to get funded but uh it, you know the sooner the better because as soon as it's funded i can start writing it and i'm just itching to write the thing i'm playing through the game at the moment and filling a, not- a notebook full of notes and i just want to i want I to really want to write this thing
0: oh exciting so yeah if, that, if that's your sort of thing um the listeners at home then uh, by all means check it out and help uh, andy get this made um it sounds really really cool um one question i do want to ask you about the game andy because i've always been kind of fascinated by this is how do you think this game is so long but remains so good despite its length because there are so many horror games that like a short (coughs) sharp shock and that's kind of like how they structure themselves but this is like nearly 20 hour game um what what do you think like the kind of magic is behind its pacing how does it keep up the momentum
1: well that that's quite a thorny issue because some people think a lot of people think it's too long and think that it it outstays its welcome and but then a, a whole other group of people like you think that it manages to Maintain its quality for a long time. Um, you could probably guess what camp I'm in, and uh, <laughs> I just, I just think it it mixes things up uh, in a way that you can't really get comfortable. So when you start to feel like you've worked out a rhythm, the game will mix things up either by throwing in like a more complex environment with more space, that safe points and hiding places, or though sometimes the the alien behavior changes as well. So there's that dynamic element of it, it never being. A prescribed game it's a game that feels different literally every time you play it so there's that aspect um and, and bits where like you know you get a brief uh, respite from the alien and you can run around and use your guns without alerting it um, for a bit of cathartic working joe uh, shotgunning is like a nice break from the tension before you inevitably go back and then towards the end they mix things up again by introducing another alien and and so i i mean for me it's a very varied game um some critics say that it's quite you know it's just the same thing over and over again hiding in cupboards for 20 hours but i i never got that from it
0: (laughs) yeah for sure i think it just allows you to build this long ongoing kind of player relationship with the alien as a as an entity like both when it's there and it's not there um and kind of like mimics the feeling in the film where ripley's never quite gotten rid of it um that's you know that's sort of like the length does that um to me a little bit um Matthew um what are your thoughts on Alien Isolation because I think we discussed it briefly before but do you have um a kind of like a a sort of read on it um from your side my read
2: on it is I actually haven't finished it
0: (laughs) (laughs) too long for you then
2: (laughs) uh yeah not, not not because it was too long or I didn't like it um I just I genuinely found it like too intense um, to kind of get through in the end I, th- I think it's it 's one of the very rare horror games where like the monster doesn 't really lose its potency like I think a lot of horror games depend on the fear of getting caught or the fear of dying or the fear of what 's going to happen and then once that thing has happened, like once you 've died a few times or you know once you 've been killed by the big thing a couple of times. You kind of overcome that because you're like, oh well, I now know what's in store for me, and you know, for whatever reason, um, you know how you know how, well the, the many from you know, perhaps that kind of like Andy says that kind of amazing alien behaviour. Um, I never really felt like you could get that foothold in this game, like it somehow holds its tension, even though this thing is getting you a lot, because that's normally what kills horror games is when you do die a lot and you do die. Well, I did die a lot in this. Um. So yeah, it's just it's a stressful experience. I do need to go back and replay it. Um I have book backed your book, Andy, and uh I need Thank to you. um <laughs> I need to finish this game so that I can uh, yeah, see it see it through to the end and get my own kind of catharsis.
0: So Andy, um I know there are some games you kind of like properly go to bat for just from my experience of working on PC Gamer the likes of Noir, Noir*, Alan Wake, um, Euro Truck Simulator 2. Um, are there any other games that you would consider writing a book about or that you've thought about uh, writing a book about?
1: Um, you said Alan Wake there and speaking of Remedy I would love to do something similar with Max Payne. I feel mm. like that's a game that I've I play with a similar level of admiration of the detail and the, the themes and the art and the uh, storytelling and stuff um I mean specifically the first two games like I, I like Max Payne three but one and two feel like such a such a they're so st- imprinted with remedies idiosyncrasies and and strange approach to to game making that yeah I'd love to do something on like Max Payne, even if it's just like some kind of we you know like those books where it's just a big long interview like I just love to talk to sam Lake for you know, a week and turn that into a book but yeah i'd, I'd like to do something on on max Payne.
0: Uh, have you reviewed really max Payne 3 andy because i know you reviewed it at the time you got that famous letter from a, <laughs> a reader um have you gone back to it because we did a podcast about it a little while ago with mouse control it's like way better than i remember it being on console did you um have you ever gone back to it have you re- changed your mind about it at all
1: yeah, I mean when I reviewed it I was like semi lukewarm on it, but I actually revisited it um was it 2 weeks ago when it was the 10th anniversary? Um I replayed mm-hmm. the airport level um just to remind myself of how good it was and yeah, like it it, it still looks great on PC and it, yeah, like you said it just feels great with with a uh, massive keyboard. Um I, I I don't I think it lacks a lot of the quirks and, as I said, the idiosyncrasies of the of the remedy games. It's it plays it a little bit too straight. I miss the kind of Lynchian undertones and weird mythological undercurrents and all that. Like they mm. Rockstar took it and just kind of made like a a kind of Tony Scott action film, which is fine. Like it's good in that sense, but I miss I miss I the weirdness.
2: Do you like Health's incredibly overrated soundtrack?
1: <laughs> well, I mean the the airport scene is the is where that soundtrack you know, peaks when that song comes blasting in as you're yeah, killing SWAT troops. But yeah. I do love that soundtrack. I love health as well, so you you, oh, okay. you, oh, you
2: oh, talk this, the wrong I'll, guy I won't,
0: I won't do my health bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. It's just one drum. That's was uh, that was Matthew's take on it, basically Andy. Um but yeah. Um Andy is there anything else you want to say about the book before we um take a little break and come back and talk about the Dreamcast a little bit. Anything else that's kind of worth highlighting?
1: um well yeah i mean i spoke about the, the the core of it which is the companion but as well as that there's going to be tons of stuff on the making of it um because i've spent I've, I've written making of features about it for a bunch of outlets and i've talked to a lot of the devs um you know many times over the years so there will be behind the scenes making of um and because it's an unofficial book i can talk about all the uncut all the cut content data miners have pulled out of it and so there's like a big lost intro sequence that never made it into the game and stuff like that so like surrounding oh. the companion there's going to be tons of stuff um about they hmm. you know going deep on the ai the design of the alien um the art of course will be like there'll be a whole chapter on the art as well as the artistic side of the companion thing so it's basically just i mean there's a full chapter breakdown on the on The page, but it's yeah, it's going to be pretty exhaustive and it's a big, thick, hardback book as well, so it'll be it'll feel pretty premium.
0: That's awesome. I'll make sure I back that, Andy, because it'd be pretty rude to have you on the podcast <laughs> and not back it myself. Thanks. So uh, appreciate it, yeah, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> siphon some money out of the Patreon fund. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, declare it as like a tax thing. Um, just write it <laughs> off. <laughs> no, not at all. It's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's great. Um, okay, awesome. Well, let's take a quick break then and we'll come back and talk about the Dreamcast a little bit, Andy. back to the podcast. So in this section Andy's going to talk a bit about the Dreamcast and me and Matthew as um, interested onlookers are so going to uh basically throw questions at him and um and talk a little bit about it. So Andy, uh, what's your personal history with the Sega Dreamcast and were you a big uh, Sega guy at the time in the 90s before it came along?
1: Well, I sort of alternated between Sega and Nintendo, but by the time the Dreamcast came, I think I'd flipped back to Nintendo. Um but I, I had a bit of a weird history with the Dreamcast where um when it was and its heyday, I didn't own one, but I knew someone who had one that was away basically every weekend. So I got it on weekends, because I basically couldn't afford one, because they were pretty pricey at the time. And uh, so my, my uh, there's some gaps in my knowledge of the games, purely because I was beholden to this guy who whose Dreamcast it was. Um, so whatever he had, I had, basically. Now I own one, and I've still got one under my TV, and I still play it, and but back in the in the golden day the golden very brief golden era i had i i was a sort of weekend dreamcaster
0: what sort of like games did uh, the, did that person have and what kind of games did you have access to did the they part? have good taste
1: <laughs> yeah well that's it i'm glad that they did so there's a few blank spots in my dreamcast knowledge um so people always going about skies of arcadia which i know I'll like because i love a jrpg and um, that's a blind spot for me because he, for whatever reason, he didn't buy that. But basically, every other big Dreamcast game, and I, you know, don't want to spoil my top five too much, but he, um was pretty on top of stuff. So mm. I played all the all the big hitters, including my number one game, which I'm delighted that he bought because it's a game I still play and and love now.
0: Well, enough about Sonic Adventure too. Um. So um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm just joking, of course. Um, so, Andy, why do you think the console has such a strong reputation in retrospect? What, What's kind of given it its cult appeal over time?
1: I think it's there's a bit of a melancholy, bittersweet side to the Dreamcast because it was the end of Sega's hardware days. Um, but there's also that kind of candle burning twice as bright for half as long thing um, because mm. it was sort of alive for such a brief amount of time. I think that has added to its legacy a bit. So I feel, feel like it was like a, a special little blip on the sort of history of games timeline a beautiful little blip that just sort of burped and faded away and that was the end of it so i think that's definitely added to the the in hindsight love for it which it obviously wasn't given at the time because it destroyed sega's hardware dreams but yeah i think that's i think yeah. that's a big part of it
0: i think that like um something i always uh sort of like thought was uh exciting about the dreamcast was the fact that of all the consoles sega made this felt like the one that caught up with what their their arcade hardware was able to do and like to to bring the side of the Sega arcade experience that I found the most interesting over to the console was that kind of appealing to you was that was were arcades like a part of your life at the time
1: yeah not at all actually like I, I, yeah I know about how the Dreamcast was like the arcade players home console of choice but I, I've never really been into arcade games I'm in a sort of story stuff or you know puzzly or rhythm stuff so like yeah, I mean, that would be reflected in my top five. But yeah, I didn't really use Dreamcast as like an arcade console. I didn't really play many beat-em-ups on it or uh, shoot-em-ups or anything like that. Right,
0: right, yeah. That's uh, that's fair enough. Um, looking back on the library of games on the console, Andy, what do you think its strengths and weaknesses are?
1: I think it had a lot of unique, bespoke, very Dreamcast games and a lot of like extremely Sega games. But like outside of that, I think it kind of failed to have the breadth of like for example ps2's library which was you know one of the broadest libraries of any console in terms of variety but i think the dreamcast was quite narrow in its field of of what kind of games it had on it and it often didn't have versions of multi-platform games or had inferior versions um so I think its library didn't really thrive as much as it, it could have in its in its brief lifespan.
0: Um, like, uh, I, I was kind of curious, like when you bought your Dreamcast, like um, what kind of games did you try and Hoover up? Did you have like a a list? Have you got a collection that you're quite happy with these days?
1: Yeah, well i I, I bought one when I bought one. It was uh, in pristine nick, and it had it's not turned yellow yet, which I'm absolutely amazed by <laughs> because most Dreamcasts <laughs> have gone yellow because of the weird fireproofing chemicals they put in the plastic. But mines are still. <laughs> beautiful light gray um thing and i you know it runs perfectly as well and i've I've not had any issues with it it just makes a hell of a lot of noise but i think it always did um when the drive's whirring it's actually quite deafening i have to sort of tuck it at the back of the tv unit to not hear it but yeah when i got one i basically just played everything um apart from a few, like I said, Skies of Arcadia is ones that's a, one that's a blind spot, and Power Stone as well, which people absolutely love. I never really got into that. I'm not like a much of a collector. I do a bit of the old CD burning uh, if I want to play somewhat obscure in Japanese, because, as you know, the Dreamcast is incredibly laughably easy to just burn a cd and play it it has no copy protection or anything to speak of right yeah
0: well in, re- in reality you've got no excuse not to have played skies of arcadia right i know I'm, as
1: i'm as i'm saying that i'm thinking i mean i've actually got it i think i don't know this somewhere maybe this is my time to finally play skies of arcadia 20 something years later
0: this feels like something i would do like just I, i'd have like three different sort of like uh cdrs with uh skies of arcadia burned onto it like one day i'll get around to this yeah and, Kind of never do. Um, I had it on that... GameCube, and then I traded it in, which is really
2: dumb because it's
0: worth <laughs> loads
2: these days. Six hundred
0: if... pounds in CEX, or whatever. Oh. <laughs> never <laughs> mind. <laughs> uh, that was uh, it. Was your version of Bitcoin, uh, Matthew? <laughs> oh, can
2: I can't believe I I got rid of my one copy of Skies <laughs> of Arcadia, but I've still got twenty packs of Borderlands Two top trumps. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: um... and a nest egg. <laughs> Andy I was kind of curious uh do you think that like when when people talk about how ahead of its time the Dreamcast was there's there's uh there's something in that in terms of the online play and stuff how how kind of like ahead of the curve do you think the console truly was well
1: it's still I think the network thing was obviously huge the fact that you could just plug an ethernet cable into it without sticking a big brick on the back like the PS2 yeah the fact that you could I mean like the VMU still feels like the future to me even though it's rubbish it's just a stupid tamagotchi sticking your controller but like just the idea of like sort of games being outside of the console like unplugging your vmu and looking after your chaos or whatever the hell it was in sonic adventure and and the playground like that that feels like a quite a fog thinking thing to me like the idea of games leaking out of your front room
2: it smacks of one of those things which is kind of there at launch and then like the 10 launch games support it and then basically no one ever does it ever again a bit like the kind of cool haptics on the playstation controller or like any of the kind of uh, wii ds kind of interplay that never really kind of came to anything but yeah i was always quite kind of envious of that one i should say like i've only ever like i've never owned a dreamcast um it's a huge huge blind spot for me and like i i kind of lived it entirely sort of vicariously through games master reviews and just looking at Pictures and images of it. Um, Sam, did you actually
0: have you have you owned one ever? Have you like? No, I haven't. It's too much to my shame. Um, I, I sort of like. What was kind of weird is a lot of the kind of like key bits of it got kind of picked off and divided between the different consoles that followed. So mm. I had an Xbox and a PS2, and so like you know I played games like Headhunter and Res, and then like um, you know like <laughs> Shenmue Two, I played on Xbox and stuff. But um, yeah, I kind of missed out on on sort of having one. Um, Andy do you think like the did the, was the kind of v, the VMB stuff kind of continued throughout the lifespan do you know were there any kind of like interesting later uses of it or did it kind of peter out
1: yeah like like Matt said it became just like an animated little character that would like you know jump in the air when you jumped or you know reflect it was like a health a health monitor and resident evil and stuff like that like very mm. um gimmicky not actually very useful stuff but i think just the, i just like the idea of it i still got a vmu sat on my desk i just like it as an object it's so nice <laughs> yeah, that's cool. the, the whole dreamcast design i still love like even that um stupid controller and the but i think the actual console itself is like a quite a beautiful little compact tasteful thing
0: how how does it kind of fare on a hdtv these days you've got like a cable for it that makes it look all right
1: yeah no not really i just play it through um the composite cable even though you can get like really nice cables that put like a clean image and convert it to hdmi i sort of don't mind the grubbiness of the image like i feel like that's how i remember the dreamcast like not looking completely pristine and high res I'm, i'm all for playing old games looking like sort of in the original resolution like the um, Shenmue remasters that came out recently like they look great in 4k but there's also an option to play in the original resolution and I play in that because it just looks like the Dreamcast to me like I, I think that's part of it you know the the aesthetic
0: yeah some of those uh, Shenmue NPCs weren't meant to be seen in 4k I would say <laughs> <No>. so, uh, <laughs> um, are you hoping they do a Dreamcast mini at some point Andy um, or do you think it has enough great games to to do 20
1: yeah I think you'd be pushing it if you were gonna pick, you know, some of the some of the mini consoles you could easily pick twenty lit le- you know, legitimately all time great games, but I think the Dreamcast's library kind of fizzles out if you had like maybe ten or fifteen really great proper classics. Um I think outside of that, I mean it's an excuse to just put a lot of deep cuts and interesting stuff on there. I'd I'd probably still buy one.
2: It is a lot of fighting games and shoot 'em ups
1: yeah lots of 3d brawlers
2: yeah i've been watching a lot of lists for it and so you know like I've, I've i've i think i've got like a reasonable grasp of like the the you know the big hits of dreamcast but it was interesting going and watching you know i've been watching a lot of like sega channels on youtube these last um this you know the last few days um it's absolutely fucked my algorithm um and brought <laughs> it's gonna bring me a world of pain going forward <laughs> It seems like if you are into shoot 'em ups or fighting games, like which I would say, like there's probably a lot of kind of crossover in the kind of people who are into both. Maybe explains like amplified love for this. All those particularly noisy corners of the internet, which make the Dreamcast maybe feel like a bigger, bigger deal <laughs> because it so kind of ticks a couple of boxes in a way that like nothing else does.
0: Yeah, so I, um, I was going to say actually um, on that subject, do you think, Andy, that all of its best games have been? kind of pilfered and put onto kind of new platforms or do you think like there's still a bunch that are sort of trapped on there obviously skies of arcadia is like a big one but um do you think most of these games now are easy to play on other formats has like the the magic of the dreamcast been sort of like transferred elsewhere at this point do you think
1: yeah well i'm looking at my list of my top five and my honorable mentions and i think all but three have been ported and possibly you know basically improved on other consoles and through re-releases or ports so i think I mean I think maybe Shenmue was like the last game people would buy a Dreamcast for and I uh, mm. as part of a big reason why I bought one as well to play that on, you know, to be able to play that now. But since that really ex- exceptionally good remaster that came out recently, I, I I probably won't play it on the Dreamcast again, especially with that original resolution option that does a good job mm. of filling you into thinking you're playing it on the old
2: hardware. Not buying a second hand unit for blue stinger. Um. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jeff, a fake. Mate? That's the two games I remember from Gamesmaster Master for some reason, Shenmue and Blue Stinger, um,
1: yeah. with that like really bad render of a guy with a beard and like a yeah right exactly on his that guy. yeah yeah <laughs> uh,
2: good stuff. It comes up a lot, like when consoles like Biff it, people then say like, "Well, is this going to be a bit of a Dreamcast?" You know, there was a bit of a conversation around like, "Is Wii U kind of a bit of a Dreamcast?" I don't think it is. Um, like I don't think it has the, like I don't think it had the breadth or depth in in the same sort of time, you know, because it's basically around a similar similar length of time as the Dreamcast, and I don't think it got there. Dreamcast seemed a lot more kind of idiosyncratic, had way more exclusives, you know, it it it, it like it but like my my impression from from you know looking into it is that it burned super bright in a way that I just don't think the Wii U ever did. Um a shame. If anything, I'd say of all the consoles since even though it's a very different sales story like the Wii has some Dreamcast energy in that it feels because of like the tech gulf between it and the rest of the generation people are kind of forced to make exclusive things for it so it gets like quite a big library of games that aren't on another machine they're very like japanese focused There's a lot of japanese publishers doing it and making cool stuff um also like not being scared of like weird peripherals and making peripherals that maybe support only one game um, is kind of part of the Wii ethos. Uh, you know, looking at them, I was like, I, th- I just got a similar energy from their two libraries, albeit one is like sold like a hundred million copies or whatever.
0: What do you What do you reckon, Andy? Do you think there's, any, there's any kind of Dreamcast energy in any other consoles that kind of followed, or is it a kind of real one off in that respect?
2: Yeah, to
1: me, to me, part of its appeal is that it's just very of its in its own little bubble. I mean, it's it's like a it's weird to be talking about it so fondly when it was, like, a failure on, on on a massive degree to the point where it made Sega never want to make a console again. Like, it's, like, a beloved failure. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's part of its appeal as well. Everyone likes a scrappy underdog.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, we might as well get to your top five then, Andy, because um, we first of all, we've got some honorable mentions I'd love to fire through. So, me and Matthew haven't seen your top five, so um, I suppose, like, in picking this, was it easy for you to select um, select a top five out of the slot? Were you kind of certain going into it? What was uh, the what were the important stuff was?
1: Yeah, pretty much. And I, I think, uh, as I said, my my top five will have maybe some Dreamcast purists gone like, "Why the hell is that in there?" But it's because I was had a, such a weird introduction to it that the games that I played were kind of chosen by someone else. But as a result of that formative period playing it, they're the ones that I, you know think of the most fondly
0: so um yeah why don't you hit us up with your first honorable mention andy
1: so metropolis street racer is that ring right, any bells yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah of course yeah like um project gotham was kind of a successor right
1: <laughs> yeah it was kind of like the the seed that grew into to the the gotham games yeah it was uh yeah the, the first bizarre creations you know racing game and it was uh, exclusive to dreamcast as well um which made it feel a little bit extra special, but it just had a lot of... like had the great um kudos system in it, which I always loved, where, you know, you get sort of scored as you play based on your sick driving skills, and it was kind of open world as well, where it had, like, three cities in it, I think London, Tokyo, and somewhere else, and all the tracks were sort of built inside this open, semi-open world, so there was, like, 200-plus tracks, you know, all cobbled together inside these cities. I think I remember being really liking
0: that kind of side of it was that like the first game to do something like that because i suppose like burnout paradise is a kind of next stage of that sort of thing but was there anything else around at the time that was doing that kind of sort of blend of like tracks inside an open world or was that game kind of the first
1: yeah i think i i, I might be wrong here but i'm pretty sure it was the first to 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 do that in a kind of notable way and i think future i think got the project gotham games as well did something similar where the tracks would all be created inside kind of cities and uh, sort of semi open environments but yeah Met- metropolis street racer so, like i remember being blown away by how it looked um i watched mm. i had looked at a youtube video today and it probably hasn't held up that well but i remember at the time <laughs> being really amazed by the kind of fidelity of it and the the lighting and the just sort of ambience of it like i think that those devs always Give that racing games a real like distinctive atmosphere, mm. and this list was similar.
0: Is this the game you're worried about um, uh, pissing off for Dreamcast hardcores uh, by not bringing <laughs> your list, Andy? No. <laughs> is it more of a photorealistic thing, or, or is it kind of more of an arcade
2: arcade kind of city?
1: Yeah, it's 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 photorealistic as far as mm. the Dreamcast could manage. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was kind of I, I think it looked, and ins- I don't think it looked quite as good as as some of the, the uh, PS2 era Gran Turismo's, but it had its own i had its own look it looked i remember just lo- loving the way the way it looked
2: Ooh,
0: that's cool so what's uh, your next over we'll mention andy um choo choo rocket oh yeah of course yeah. yeah it came with like did it come with the online something or other this i yeah. seem to recall
1: yeah when you signed up for oh, what was it called dream something which was i uh, was like dreamscape or it was basically the online subscription service and you got a dream key in the post which is a um cd that you stick in the dreamcast and that lets you go through the getting online process and on the other side of the the jewel case of your dream key was choo, choo rocket which was um, online <laughs> enabled but i didn't really play it online i just enjoyed it as a yeah solo player and it's it's bad i don't know if, if you remember but it's basically a puzzle game about guiding what are they are they they either rats mice or rabbits i can't remember you're guiding them <laughs> Uh, away from cats so it'll be mice you're, gu- you're guiding mice away <laughs> from cats into rockets so they can escape from the cats in the <laughs> rockets yeah oh, that's cool and it's like one of those puzzle games where it's like a- an endless flow kind of like a lemmings-esque flow of mice on the screen you've got you set up like barriers and stuff to guide them around away from the cats good puzzle game mm,
0: that's cool yeah I-, I do remember coveting this seeing it on like seeing the case for it or like a something for it in a game and thinking that sounds awesome that like you sign up to this online thing you play this game that you only get by getting this thing um until it came out on Game Boy Advance a little while later but <laughs> um yeah that's uh that's super cool did you ever play much Dreamcast online Andy or was that kind of side of it I, I guess you you if you're playing it at weekends maybe you didn't have the same access to it
1: yeah, well, sometimes I'd I'd go around to a friend's house who had it all hooked up and I'd play Quake 3 uh, Arena, which was, mm. I mean, I, at that point I had a PC and I was playing Quake 2 on, on my 56K modem, so it wasn't as, as mind-blowing, but it was still, I remember feeling weird sitting with a controller playing Quake <laughs> on, a, on a TV and not sat on my computer, which is totally normal now, and you can plug a PC mm. into any screen you can imagine, but yeah, I remember that being quite a novelty. That's
0: cool. I, st- um,
2: I associate this period of time with reading about online play and online play being a thing, which more and more people were doing, but also knowing that my parents were like incredibly strict about internet usage in our house because it was so expensive. And then we thinking like, wow, who could ever go online? Who could ever <laughs> be online with a thing? Like, you know, we were lucky, you know, we were, you know, get 10 minutes of online access or something, which kind of bankrupt the family. So the idea of it, I, could, I always thought, wow, it seems so opulent. Maybe that's me.
0: No, it, it seemed like that for me too. We used, I used to have like an hour of um, uh, dedicated online time a week. And uh, I would just browse the Lucasarts website over and over again because <laughs> I was a very dull child. Um, what's uh, your next honorable
1: mention, Andy? Um, well, I've got one more, and it's one that people might expect to see in the top five, but it's Crazy Taxi, the original. Ah, okay. Um Yeah, I think that's the only thing that you mentioned earlier about it. The Dreamcast's been a great console for arcades conversions. I think Crazy Taxi is the one I played that really had that arcade feel. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't love, I don't. Uh, Crazy Taxi is not like one of my favorite games but I appreciate the sort of really wild energy of it and the brightness of it and the Sega blue skiesiness of it and obviously the great soundtrack and the weird product placement with Tower Records on every street corner and yeah it's it's just a very like flavor of Dreamcast game for me like when I think of Dreamcast images of Crazy Taxi comes screeching into my brain
0: yeah it's like it's on so many formats these days but I th- i'm pretty sure you have to mod the pc version to get the original soundtrack and yeah. textures and stuff in um i have done that and it is worth it i will say <laughs> but um yeah um no that's that's cool I, I, did you see that tweet during the rounds recently andy that was um that was the map of crazy taxi and kind of like laid out the fact that it's basically just like a, a circuit that you're doing um and not an open world as you kind of it tricks your brain into thinking it is did you see that doing the rounds no i didn't
1: see that but that that sounds weird because in my head it's like a big sprawling san francisco-esque yeah, network it's of streets. like
0: one
2: it's like one big loop with maybe <laughs> a cluster of side streets at like three points
1: so how did they yeah. do that how did they fill us all
0: i don't know maybe it's because you are going back and forth back and forth and like yeah. it, it kind of it re it reorients you so many times you don't think about it but um yeah just, i'll send you the uh, link after this just Wait. the
2: stress the stress of trying to deliver people to their destinations <laughs> you don't really um, have time to pass the world you're so focused on yeah. that big fucking arrow that you're just like oh shit i've got to get there um
0: this seemed like a series they could never quite nail in the like again in any kind of meaningful way too in terms of like the second one was kind of the same thing again and then the third one wasn't very well liked at all on xbox the vegas set one so um yeah i don't know this uh yeah definitely um this i associate this as a a big kind of like dreamcast game and um now you can play on anything like i say but without the original soundtrack
2: a quick question about about sega and this is just a sort of memory thing the whole kind of sega aesthetic blue skies thing that feels like it started being celebrated after the fact like I don't remember people talking about these games in this way at the time, and I don't know if that's just my bad memory or like the fact that I was just reading games Master and they weren't talking about these games in this way, but it feels like a a look that is now cherished. Is that wrong?
1: I think people always knew it was there and loved it but but u k resistance with its blue skies campaign articulated why right. We liked it, kind of thing. Like it, may, it's one of those things where someone says something, and you go, "Oh yeah, I've always thought that," but I just never had it. it articulated in a way that I can say it, so I feel like mm. it was like it, it, it highlighted a something that was always there. That's that's the feeling mm. I get, but that could just be pure blinker. Yeah. Uh I don't know. That
2: feels legit. Cause I remember, yeah, I remember <laughs> reading, yeah, reading that sort of term after the fact, and then it instantly just being absorbed into my vocabulary and I talk about Sega Beast Guys all the time but yeah I I don't yeah, I was just,
0: yeah, that's probably it.
2: It could well <laughs> be that. It's very influential.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a it's a really good way of boiling down, you know, like all your what you can kind of remember of these different games from Outrun to Sonic the Hedgehog and stuff. So um yeah, works really well. Um so Andy, we come to your top five. Uh, what's your fifth what's the fifth game on your list?
1: This is one people might be thinking, why is this in a top five? but it's 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 the game that, that made me in originally lust after a Dreamcast when I saw it running in one of those plastic sealed off display units in Virgin Megastore or something. Um, yeah. Ready ready to rumble boxing. Anyone remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Afro-Thunder. Afro-Thunder <clears throat> Afro yeah. Boris Bonkamoff or whatever he's called. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound like top five material, but. but hear me hear me out
0: (laughs) yeah go on go on um
1: well yeah like i mean it was developed by midway i think um and it was like basically super punch out for dreamcast um with uh sort of ridiculous possibly offensive racial stereotype characters and slightly cartoonish um approach to it it had like some of the best like wounding and bruising i've ever seen in a boxing game like you by the top by the end of a match you'd like turned your opponent into a, a splatter of various colors like i don't know if you if you either of you remember at the time all the talk about how amazing the uh the the, the facial damage tech was
0: vaguely yeah kind of vaguely recall it but i don't remember it's, this it's, it's kind of
2: cartoonish though right like fat lips yeah. and things
1: yeah it's like yeah it's not like uh knockout kings or something like a realistic box it's not like you're having to cut your eyelids <laughs> no. open so you can see <laughs> yeah it's just you know biffing someone on the head and a big uh, exaggerated you know bruise forming or whatever like but i mean yeah. that, that that was purely like a thing to get games magazines excited and people like me in the virgin mega store watching it on the, the display unit and being amazed by it but i just um i did i played a hell of a lot of it because it was one of the first games the person whose dreamcast i kept borrowing got um because it was a launch game i think i'm pretty sure it was um, and it's just like a really fun arcade boxing slash beat 'em up. And if you watch like clips of it now, like the, the the impact, I remember the impacts feeling really satisfying. And it's got some of the most like almost semi-cartoonish like fist fist meeting face sound effects. Like it's just like a real. <laughs> it's got like a real tactile feel to it. Like you can really feel the weight of the of the punches. And there was like the uh, Rumble meter, where if you like after successive blocks and punches, you you spelled out the word Rumble, which then let you pull off like kind of exaggerated flurries of punches. Um, mm. It's specific to each character, but I mean, it's just I remember it just being a really like fun, weighty, satisfying beat 'em up with like some uh, graphics tech and that made me made me want a Dreamcast and made people I remember people talking in school about have you seen this? You can you can make a guy's eyes swell if you hit him really <laughs> hard. And that being like a, a selling point.
2: <laughs> yeah. Midway actually feel like a good fit for Dreamcast. You know, as like an, you know another kind of arcade company albeit like this, sort of the US almost like the US counterpoint to sort of Sega. Mm. It feels like they're, they kind of got it. Or that this was a time they could sort of flourish. They're a company who didn't really like, well you know, they died so they didn't, it felt like they never really learned how to exist in the True post arcade world. Mm. Um, yeah. That's mm. cool. I thought you were going to say Toy Commander when you started talking <laughs> about de- in store demos. That's what I remember on Dreamcast. Yeah. Flying around like kitchen in like yeah. a little plastic yeah, helicopter. That.
1: <laughs> yeah, that and Reddit Rumble were like the Virgin Megastore go tos for selling Dreamcasts. Which, yeah. <laughs> and the, f- the fact that they're, neither of them are, are now considered classics is probably a clue that why the Dreamcast didn't quite build an audience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, if um if you have anything to say about the Dreamcast mini um Andy then I'm I'm sure this will be straight on there. It's, oh yeah. Um, oh definitely. Yeah. It's
1: definitely. Great two player game as well.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um it's not a bit like there can't be many people praising that game in 2022, so no. uh, I'm pleased to hear it. Um <laughs> so what's your number four? Number
1: 4 is probably a more uh, common pick. Space Channel 5.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Yeah um this one did this one ever come on other formats or was it just a sequel that got bored elsewhere
1: yeah i think the original was on ps2
0: so what was the kind of magic of this one for you when you when you break
1: break it down it's an incredibly simple game it's just a game of simon says it's aliens appear in front of you they say commands you match the commands and by doing so you shoot the aliens or you rescue hostages. So it's like that thing of it's like those shooting galleries where terrorists pop up and then little girls holding a teddy bear pops up and you've got to not shoot the little girl. It's like that, but in a rhythm game format. Um it's it's Tetsuya Mizuguchi's baby, like he he um, it's one of his earlier rhythm games, and I think he it and it sounds very two thousand and one or nineteen ninety nine, whatever the game, whenever the game came out. But the Sega wanted him to make a game that would appeal to women, and so Space Channel Five is like the result of that. Like, but I guess that made it feel quite different from from other games that were floating around at at the time because it's got quite a distinctive feel to it. But it's just a, a great rhythm game with like an amazing soundtrack that i still listen to now like proper good music what makes up for the simplicity of it is just the constant changing of scenery around you um it Mm -hmm. used it used a very late 90s thing of having fmv pre-rendered fmv with uh, cf with 3d models on top um so the environments are constantly changing and the music's evolving as you play and like it's just like a real like treat for the senses.
0: Yeah, it feels like the iconography of this one has endured, give or take a Michael Jackson um, pastiche. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah definitely kind of like visually distinctive.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it's got that like um, mix of like yeah the art is like a it's like a sixties vision of the future, like which I think like vintage visions of the future is a, an aesthetic a lot of games do now. Um, obviously, Fallout being a prime example. But I think yeah, like that sixties. Look to it, like all sort of rounded and colorful, and like the fashion of like Ulala and all our crazy followers. Like it just looks incredibly good. it's kind of like the Fifth Element as a game. Like it's got that same kind of colorful, <laughs> weird, slightly French sci-fi feel to it.
2: What that... what is the, the the music in this? Is it poppy? Is it dancey? Is it like your typical kind of Mitsuguchi stuff? Or
1: yeah, well, it's, it's it's similar in the to the way of the, the kind of vintage throwback aesthetic it's very 60s um but i think that they based the whole soundtrack around like an old piece of music from the 60s like a very like something you'd hear like between programs on radio one in the 60s like a, kind of, i can't remember what the piece is called but it's like by someone called like brian johnson and his piccadilly orchestra or something so they took this old <laughs> <laughs> this old like austin powers ass piece of music and that became the theme for um for Space Channel 5. I don't know where they found this piece of music. but they, <laughs> So the whole soundtrack's like, a, it's like a, what's the word, a leitmotif of that piece of music. For, so it's all right. big brass instruments. And, but then it's like, it mixes old 60s Austin Powers music. I can't think of a better way to describe it. But with like late 90s, very 1999 uh, dance music and electronic. Right. But it's but it's mm-hmm. not as overtly electronic as a lot of music Gucci games. It's like kind of orchestral funky orchestral music with like a kind of oh that's cool
2: back, uh, back, i like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that thing about like the band name that's so spot it's always it's when you look up like the grandstand theme tune and you find out that it's actually like got a name and it was played by a band like that i'm i'm big into those kind of big band <laughs> uh vibes that's fun yeah <laughs> yeah
0: Big Dave's Orchestra, kind of like uh, kind yeah. of
1: a song called yeah. "Fancy Lady" or something. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, amazing. Um, so, what's your number three, Andy? Uh,
1: number three is another Mizuguchi joint. I don't know if that's what he calls his games, but uh, it's Res. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: of course, yeah, the uh, the old classic. Did you have the old uh, uh, people make the same joke over and over again about the <laughs> the whatever uh, whatever it's called, vibration thing? Yeah, do you the have one of those? Vibrator
1: was- it was PS two only, the Trans um, ah. well, wasn't on Dreamcast. Um but I, I mean I That's I, why the
0: Dreamcast died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Rez is res, isn't it? I think it's a game that's like still now played and held up as an example of maybe some of Mizaguchi's best work. I think I've played more of it on more of the hd version i did on dreamcast but i played a lot of it on dreamcast at the time and i just think like it's a, a lot more of a game than space channel 5 um space channel 5 is just tapping but tapping buttons and in response to a thing on the screen whereas res is more of like a shoot 'em up and with the um that really satisfies. It's so satisfying still when you drag that cursor over a bunch of different enemies and that you hear that like clicking noise of like successful lock-ons and then you let go and like your volley of of anti-viral computer, I don't know what it is. Computer pixels fly out and sort of mm-hmm. kill the viruses. Like it's it's really it's one of the the best games like in terms of feedback and feel, and especially the way it all syncs up with the music and that married with the sort of psychedelic visuals and the 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 whole concept of, like, invading virus-ridden computer systems. Like, it's such a... There's, there's nothing I don't like about Res. Like, it's really... Apart from it gets quite difficult as it goes on. But, I mean, all of these rhythm games are really punishing. Like, Space Channel 5 is horribly difficult to play. You have to really get into, like, a real mindset to play it. But, yeah, I think Res is... It's, it's just it still is an incredible game i don't think it's aged at all
0: pretty amazing this is one of the games you can just go buy on an oculus quest 2 now mm. you know you can put on a vr headset in 2022 and it's like a new game you can buy i agree i think like what maybe you know i don't have loads of space channel 5 experience but maybe what puts it above is like there is this element of mastery to it Um, like you say it is very very hard and like um it's other than the first level you will struggle to like 100 percent hit everything in a level so Maybe that does give it a little bit of longevity, um, mm. and the visual style has helped it date really well. And there's something so perfectly like late '90s, early noughties about being an antivirus thing, like yeah. embodied inside a computer. You know what I mean?
1: And is that great? Um, is it Adam Freeland's uh, song? I think from Level Three, maybe, um, called "Fear," which has got that um, sample from Dune about fear being the mind killer. Like that just gives it. That, that's like that's cool to me.
0: <laughs> that's the most andy kelly ass uh shit uh, imaginable. um yeah no i like that I mean, did you play res infinite at all andy did you play the the new level they added for it
1: no I, I didn't actually i think i i remember they did like a hd version of it before that that i played but yeah i've not played the new the newest iteration of it yet i
0: okay, might
2: be cool. too square for
0: res <laughs> uh, anyway, it's not that like out there really though have you, have you played it at all uh matthew
2: yeah but like the mu- like the music isn't necessarily what I'd listen to. It's not Randy Newman, it's very different.
0: <laughs>
2: um though I would happily play that mod.
1: <laughs> How are you gonna experience synesthesia if you don't
2: That's the thing. I've read so many things about synesthesia and I'm like it sounds like bullshit to me because I haven't experienced it. Um but have you experienced it? No. I don't
1: isn't it something like isn't, <laughs> no. it, isn't it something some people just have and you can't like simulate it oh okay like like midichlorians I don't know. I feel like he wants to like evoke the feeling of it.
2: Right. He's trying to. Okay. He's trying to kind of convey his. Yeah. He uses yeah. that word
1: a lot. Of, like I think in Space Channel Five. Um, if you read some of the making of stuff, he uses that word and promoting that as well. Like he's been dining out on that one for a bit.
0: Right. I was saying that like that's the sort of thing that you can only get away with when you're a Japanese game designer. I feel like anyone in the West said that they'd be like, <laughs> "Give it a rest, mate." Do you know what I mean? But yeah. like it's <laughs> just different. I think like slightly different standards on that stuff when it's. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it's when it's been translated,
2: I definitely felt with Tetris Effect such a just a big audio visual experience with like the particle effects and the music and the just the four Kness of it and the HDRness of it. It's kind of supremely overwhelming in a very satisfying way, and I I did wonder in that like, oh, is this it? You're just so completely enveloped by the the muchness of something.
0: The VR version of um, Tetris Effect where. I think particularly like um, the New York stage of it, where there's this jazzy music and it's like New York at night. Like that has such a powerful sense of place that um, I think VR is a really, really good fit for Misoguchi, for sure. Um, That's a good, good that's my favorite stage as
1: well. Yeah, the New Mm -hmm. York one's great, like musically. Some of them, like the music's quite annoying, especially when you're like (laughs) struggling to keep on top of it and you've got this irritating sound in your ear. It's a very mixed bag, that soundtrack. Whereas I think all of Rez i like musically
0: yeah i think like um something i really wanted for tetris fact that maybe other people didn't is like i would kind of like it if it was the whole game was themed after different cities around the world or something so mm. you could you feel like you're plunged into a metropolis um with its own musical style where you're playing tetris might have been more my sort of thing than we're going to the funky desert now or whatever do you know what i mean like um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's a great idea
2: <laughs> come to bath and they just make you listen to two minutes of this podcast
0: that'd be great <laughs> Yeah, or Christian rock music in the forum, something like that. Um, okay, cool. Um, oh, so uh, I think we're on number two, is that right, Andy? Number two is Resident Evil called Veronica. Of course. Is there something about like Shinji Mikami just going to bat for consoles that like finish last? Is that just a thing that he likes doing? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is probably one of the best Resident Evil games, uh, in my opinion. Um, in my head, it's kind of like the real Resident Evil 3 like it's it's such a continuation of Resi two, and it feels like a a real combination of Resi one and two in terms of it brings Chris and Chris back and also reunites Chris with Claire, so that's like a, a nice continuity there. But um I think it actually began life as Resident Evil three, before they went in a different direction with it with all the Jill stuff and went back to Raccoon City. But um, I think I like this one because it it it. Leaves raccoon city and the surrounding forest behind, and it goes somewhere totally different. Um, it goes to Rockfort Island, which is like a weird island in like in the sea near the Antarctica or something. It's got it's all like gothic. It's got like a really gothic European feel to it, which is like very different than the American city vibe of of the other Resi games. So that's like a a, a defining factor of it. Um, I like that they they got rid of pre-rendered backgrounds and went for. It's still got static cameras, but it's uh, the three D backgrounds mean that the camera can be a lot more playful and sort of swoop around or lurk behind stuff. Um so they they really like up the game up with like this the cinematography of it. Do either of you have any, any fond memories of God Veronica?
0: But you know, it's one I have I have never finished. Um mm. but I do remember thinking that like this was quite a good cause people I I don't know if you remember this, Andy, but critics were really grousing at the time about the fact that Resi was stuck in this formula mm. and that it should move on and this felt like a good middle ground between that old formula and what would become resi 4 i don't know if you agree with that
1: yeah it does it does feel like a a bit of connective tissue between the old games and and resi 4 like in, in terms of structure and they kind of put the, there's less fewer puzzles in it than some uh of the old games but it's still that thing of of wandering around a creepy environment doing sticking gems and statues heads and stuff and like it, it's still it's got the pace and feel of old resi but but some of the presentation and it's is like a yeah, kind of bridge to what it would eventually become the atmosphere of it was like really really it's got a really particular atmosphere i don't think other resi games have like it's so of that game um it's hard mm. to describe, but it like feels a certain way. Like when I play Veronica, like it gives me a feeling like no other Resi does. There's something quite distinctive about it. Um, I'm not sure what that is, but it's like quite a unique feeling game.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's like another thing that it does that later Resi games would do is like that switch up in location. You know, like all of the games are from this one onwards. Do you know do just go beyond like um, just being one city mm. and um, and so yeah, like that. This definitely kind of establishes that. Yeah, I feel like this is probably like the most like under-liked game in terms of like maybe it's because it's not as widely available as some of the other ones it wasn't as widely played because it was released on dreamcast and later re-released on ps2 mm. maybe it fell between the cracks slightly um matthew i don't know if you played this one
2: no my my experience of this one is in it's one of the campaigns in the second light gun game they did the um dark side <laughs> chronicles oh, which yeah. is resi 2 and then uh this and so like you know obviously that's a different representation of it quite silly fun like there's like a like a mad villain in this who's kind of sort of i think he's like split personality like dresses up as his sort of demented sister or something yeah that's it's alfred
1: sort of, and alexis ashford yeah, yeah. I,
2: I like that 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 felt like classic like classic resi fun you know of the kind i like you know that's the that's the kind of tone i want i want from this series um but yeah i've been meaning to go back and play this um
0: Re released on 360 in some capacity, right? Yeah, I think it's backwards compatible on modern platforms and everything. It's just, I think that's like that might be the only place you can get it though. I don't, Andy, yeah. you know, you can play it anywhere else. It's definitely not on PC, I don't think. No, mm. I,
1: yeah, I think maybe like emulating it's one of the best ways to play it at the moment. Maybe the mm. yeah, Dreamcast or, or Code Veronica X, which was the, the re release, wasn't it? But I think that the heart, the like, um, a lot of Dreamcast games suffered from just not been easy to play if you don't have an expensive dreamcast you couldn't play code veronica which probably ha- uh, dampened its its appeal i think it's not yeah like not too fondly remembered apart from me choosing it as my second all-time dreamcast game no i mean
0: you know i definitely don't think you're alone in, in that stuff i know joe donnelly on pc gamer was huge into this game um what do you think of steve burnside though andy he seems like the kind of character you would fucking hate
1: yeah i don't like steve burnside when when he <laughs> spoiler dies i wasn't that bothered <laughs> despite going for a, a large part of the game as him but um i think they made him less annoying in that um umbrella chronicles like retelling of the story i'm pretty sure they like dampened his whininess a bit but i mean he's he's not a great character when chris shows up it's sweet relief from having to hang out with <laughs> steve
0: burnside <laughs> oh that's uh that's good yeah i, I remember like in one magazine I read at the time, he was described as like um looking like a Soho Media knob circa two thousand and three <laughs> or something. And it's true he does have yeah. big Nathan Barley energy. Um so what's your number one, uh Andy? I'm guessing um I know what it is, but uh, yeah. I still I, I can't wait till you talk about it. Yeah. Well, number one by quite a margin
1: and probably one of my top three games of all time is Shenmue, original Shenmue.
0: One of the most expensive game ever at the time, probably not even in the top thousand these days. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, like, um, was um, this something you played at the time or did it come later?
1: Yeah, this was one I played at the time. This was the, the, I mean, apart from Ready to Rumble luring me in with its um, real-time bruising tech, um, Shenmue (laughs) was the game that I actually wanted to, properly play and when I remember the I vividly remember the first weekend where I uh, got hold of a, of that Dreamcast and Shenmue and it really pro- properly blew me away at the time and in a way that is still kind of echoing now where I'm still writing articles about about it um you know spurred on by that uh re-release that that was released recently but um yeah it's still a game I replay at least once a year and I'm constantly, it's constantly lingering in my mind in some way.
0: I suppose, like, what is it that's distinctive about this one versus Shenmue 2, Andy? Is it like the small town setting um, that you like in, in this one?
1: Yeah, Shenmue 2 is great, but it, I mean, reflecting of how, you know, real would feel going to Hong Kong, it's he leaves his small, close knit community in Yokosuka and he goes to a massive city and he suddenly it feels a lot more anonymous. Um, I love the mm. really. The, the feeling of like community in the original Shenmue where every NPC you know if you go to, go up to someone on the street they'll know you because obviously you're the kid that lives up the road and there's that feeling of it's a small area um but you run through it you know multiple times uh, across you know in game months and so you start seeing routines and you know that this certain character's going to be eating lunch here at this time or, Oh, this person will be here at this time. Like you, really know it, it, the sense of like place and community and feeling like you're in a sort of living space is like really quite powerful. You, like even now, I wrote a thing recently about how it's still impressive now. Like the si- the simulation element of this little community where it has people. Follow routines, and you feel like you're a part of like a sort of group of people in a way you don't in any other game. Like it's really quite mm. wild how much effort went into that, and even this like backstory is written for every NPC. Like every some random guy that walks down the street at eight o'clock every night, he's got like a backstory which you can get through various means. Where you can like, there's no not one NPC in the game is just a, a automaton who walks back and forward. You know, everyone has, they go places or they go back to the house at the end of the night. Like it's really wild when you think about it, that they were doing this back in the late 90s
0: something i i thought like might appeal to you about this andy is that it's kind of it's it's a little bit point and click game um playing uh, playing shimmy do you think that's like fair to say in terms of like how you interact with this world and its characters
1: yeah i think that's why i like it it's, it's like a detective game i mean to call back to the the first episode i guessed on like I, i'd count it as a detective game because it's really about following leads and um walking around talking to people Getting a clue that will lead to another person, getting a bit of paper that's written in Chinese, so you go to a Chinese restaurant and they translate it for you and that leads to another thing. Like it is just a whole game of following a sort of complicated tangle of leads to try and find the guy who killed your father, but with interspersed with the odd fight. And the fights are very used quite sparingly, which I like. Like you're not constantly just punching people all the time when a fight happens. There's context for it there's a reason for it there's weight behind it. Mm. The character's often reluctant to do it as well, so like I kind of like that about it It's mainly just thinking about like existing in a lovely little Japanese town, going around talking to people and just just being there and it's really slowly paced and like the tone is really melancholy like it's yeah like I think it's I think it could be like my perfect game into in terms of tone and pacing and sense of place and world building and i i I really can't fault, fault it it's quite incredible.
2: It is hard to think of anything else which is which has done this, you know, I feel like so many games that set out to recreate the world or capture the world are kind of dealing with like scale rather than like minutia, maybe and it's just that focus means it, it it never really dates you know it it nailed the accuracy so well like no one else seems to be even trying to kind of mimic that level now
1: yeah like uh, people um compare the Yakuza games to Shenmue I and there are similarities but like Yakuza is the complete opposite and all the people on the street are just you know set dressing and Mm. Shop mannequins who walk back, back and forward. You know, I think Shenmue doesn't get enough credit for the depth of it, it, how its community is simulated. Um, a, a good tip actually is if you're replaying it on the remasters, which are really good. If you play it with Japanese voice acting and English subtitles, it's a, it's a, it's literally a different game. So with the, with the incredibly corny, inhuman, bizarre voice acting in the English dub, it is like notoriously. I mean that it has its own charm and it adds a certain flavor to it and it feels like you know it's about a lot of people's memories of Shenmue are. But if you play it with Japanese audio like this, it's all really low key and like quite muted and down tempo, mm. and it totally mm. transforms the mood of the game. Like it really heightens the melancholy, sweet feeling of it, and it becomes even more like sad and like beautiful. Whereas if you play it with the crazy English voice acting and all these comical characters doing weird voices, it. it the tracks on that a bit so like even if you've played it replay it with japanese audio and you'd be amazed at what a transform how it completely transforms the vibe of the game like it it's quite amazing how different it feels
0: i've only ever played shimmy 2 with the english voice acting on xbox i don't think japanese was an option on there no um Whereas I believe the Dreamcast one when it launched in Europe only had Japanese audio, is that right, Andy? The Shenmue 2?
1: Uh, oh yeah, Shenmue 2, yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah.
0: So yeah, I, I do admittedly think of it as a bit of a meme game sometimes and yeah, it, it probably, if we're like not being particularly charitable, it does cheapen the the great things that that game does in some ways Mm. um so yeah I think detracting saying detracts is completely fair did um Shenmue 3 um speak to you at all Andy how did you feel about that one
1: it was so clearly a game made for people like me like I can I I sympathize with people who played it with no love for slash experience with the first two games because it's he, he just made another Shenmue game you know down to the meandering pace and the this slightly offbeat style of writing and the plot that kind of ambles to nowhere. And, yeah, so, I mean, I loved it because it was just... It was made for me. It's pure a game just aimed at the Shenmue fans, but I can see why some people thought, what is this, creaky old yeah. crap? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, Matthew, is this uh, this series ever come across your radar? It feels like something you would like, so... Um, yeah, I mean, like like, this,
2: this was like... If if I could have summoned a game into being in my living room, you know, when I was a teenager, this would have been it. I remember being so, like, envious of... of, Well, I didn't know anyone who had it. Like, I didn't have any friends with the Dreamcast, um, but I remember reading about it in Games Master and thinking it was just everything, you know, I just, you know, I've I've said this on the podcast before, but when they pointed out in previews that you could, like, open every drawer in the house, and there was, like, stuff in them, and you could maybe find, like, games or music or or trinkets or whatever, or you could go and use, like, you know, Gashapon machines and all this kind of stuff, and just thinking... Well, that's, that's, you know, they've done it, haven't they? It's like the entire world. They've built the entire world in a game, like a game where you can open every drawer in a house. I couldn't imagine something better than that. And, uh, yeah, just didn't have didn't have the money to, to, to get a Dreamcast. Like, it just wasn't on, on the cards. Um, and I only played it when it got remastered. Uh, yeah, I played it on Tux1. So, yeah, it took years and years to get there and... Um, you know i opened those drawers and thought yeah that's good <laughs> yeah there's some socks in there wow <laughs> yeah i mean that would have blown my whatever 15 year old mind now i'm like you know i've seen a lot <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but it has uh you're right in t- like tonally it, it fits into um so many things i like like it's obviously a very different game in terms of like scale and gameplay systems but i think there's a lot of shenmue's energy in like hotel dusk Mm -hmm. and sing games everyday people where the highest moment of drama actually isn't really anything at all but in the context of quite a low-key adventure everything becomes very meaningful i think is is probably the the thing that kind of resonates with me and connects with me and um yeah i enjoyed three as well i thought three was 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 fine um it was decent but yeah i wish i wish i'd been there back in the day
0: cuz i just i just couldn't believe it like that such a thing existed great game to read about in games magazines this oh. like that's yeah that was like a big part of the fud of like yeah. it was like a grand folly it kind of encompasses what the dreamcast is in so many ways you know <clears throat> um uh just like underselling over you know overly expensive and ridiculously ambitious ahead of its time it's like the the console and the the game that, that's playing on the console in sync you know um there was one last thing i wanted to ask you about andy and that was like i saw you tweet once about is there a moment in this game where your friend leaves and like you found that particularly emotionally devastating i just remember you tweeting like a garth morangi image <laughs> along with it but i, I kind of wanted to probe this moment because um it, it seems like a moment that really spoke to you in the story so like um what was that all about
1: yeah well it's because it's a game where you live a life of a japanese teenager day to day and every day you meet people on the street and one of them is your mate who runs a hot dog stand uh, a jamaican guy called tom who's living in japan for some reason and so you speak to him every day and like a bunch of times he helps you out and he you know he's like one of your mates and so you spend you know maybe 15 hours just hanging out with this guy and him being really nice to you and then he flies Back to America for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it's just a really sad moment where Rio stands on a harbor and watches the plane fly away, and he goes, "My friend, Tom." <laughs> and that, it's just like <laughs> a, it's just such a like devastating moment because you, you've, I think that, that when he leaves Japan at the end, it hits extra hard because you've spent ages, just living his life and getting to know his you know neighborhood and talking to people, and people really care for him, and he's on this blinkered quest for revenge, which is what I really quite like people are constantly saying stop this stop chasing this crime boss around the world you know he'll just kill you and he's completely blinded by his desire just to go wherever he is and like there's an extra poignancy to that as well where he's like going on this damn fool crusade and everyone around him that loves him is like what are you doing this is crazy but like yeah that that moment hits that hits hard i'm getting emotional thinking about it yeah yeah like I don't um
0: <laughs> I don't laugh because it's um you know because it's ridiculous I think it's like a really good use of like an in-game time mechanic as, as Shemu does like it if the idea is that time is moving on and that there is permanent change as a result of that what a great you know in like 1999 or 2000 like, what a great use of a mechanic to tell that story you know um, well, there's some great stuff yeah. for
1: the time if you if you muck about for if you really go out of your way to not chase leads and, and get the, you know, progress the story, the time, the in-game clock can go as far as April 1987 or whatever it is, like the next year. So you can go for all the way through Christmas, through January, February, March and get to April. And if you, if you mess around for that amount of time, the, the bad guy Landy, he just comes back and just kills you. That's it. That's wow. the end. <laughs> like it's the most depressing ending. You're like... He probably gets wind that there's some kid going around asking questions about, it, so he just comes back to the dojo and just murders you, and that's it, game over. But you really have to mess around on a, a incredible scale to make it to April without reaching the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. This guy's been like eating hot dogs and chatting to people about <laughs> yeah. their day for like a year, and occasionally mentioning you. Um, yeah, oh, that's great stuff, Andy. That's awesome to hear you talk about that. It's um, yeah, it's that's really really cool um well we come to the end of the episode thank you so much andy for coming on and talking about your book and um about uh, about the dreamcast it's really really great to have you um so it's perfect organism the book right
1: Yep, yeah, that's right um yeah if you go on my my twitter um at ultra brilliant the pinned post is a link where you can go and
0: pre-order a copy and help get it get it made awesome uh, this podcast is supported by patreon.com slash backpage pod where we do uh, two exclusive podcasts a month for people who sign up to the XL tier. Um, If you'd like to support us, you can go there. Matthew, where can people find you on social media? Mr. Basil underscore pesto. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
1: If I'm cool. coughing right. a lot, by the way. It's because I've got like a lingering COVID cough, even though I'm I'm negative and recovered. I've just got like this weird little ratty cough that won't go. So
2: I might oh, say oh, about th- best I, I can edit around it. If
0: I have a lingering cough, it's because I um, wolfed down a pork dinner before this uh, recording. And it's just repeating on me slightly, but uh, <laughs> pork dinner. <That's> so very <laughs> so not a great combination of words, is it? Uh, all right, cool.